Once again, good morning, Grace. So good to be here. Uh, Very privileged to be able to come before you and bring the word here this morning. It's always a joy. It's always a pleasure. And I'm excited in particular because we are going to be continuing our study of the book of Mark here this morning. We're going to be looking at a very famous passage, the denial of, or Peter's denial of Jesus. Um, And I'm really excited that we might spend some time here. It is a very gut-wrenching hard passage in some ways to read through. We see one of the most beloved characters of scripture, somebody that we really relate to a lot of the time, fail terribly, just really epically drop the ball. And yet at the same time, there's so much good gospel truth that's just wonderful for us to camp on and to wrestle with in this passage. And so we're going to seek to do that this morning. In a lot of ways, today's Uh, passage, this denial of Jesus by Peter is really part two of what Eric Twistleman was preaching on last week. A lot of similar things are going to be coming up, uh, a lot of similar themes. Uh, It may not look entirely different, but I think it's good that we still spend time here and we camp on this. We are a people who, like Come Thou Fount says, we're prone to wander. We are people who drift. Uh, We are people who fail to remember, and so it's good that the Lord would bring us back to these incredible Uh, gospel themes over and over again uh, throughout the book of Mark and really all of scripture. So uh, let us recognize that we need these truths driven into our hearts. Two main points that I have this morning. First, and just for transparency's sake, uh, these are both quotes from other people that I found and I feel like really applied well to this passage. I'm not nearly creative enough uh, to be able to come up with really well-worded things a lot of times, so I just rely on other people. This first one is from Alistair Begg, famous pastor, very smart. Uh, and, And our point is this, the best of men are men at best. The best of men are men at best. Peter, as great as he is, and as wonderful as a representative for us as he is, he is a man, he is merely a man, and therefore his best efforts will always fall short. And second, and this comes from Trip Lee, a rapper that I love, Jesus, who is no mere man, succeeds in every way that we fail. Jesus succeeds in every way that we fail. Jesus is our hope, not our well-intentioned efforts. And so we're going to be reading this passage today. And even though Jesus isn't uh, at the forefront of it in a lot of ways, we will see that he really is the main idea here. So let's turn to Mark 14. And we will dive in. Mark 14. Judging by the lack of page turning, I'm guessing you guys were already there. So Mark 14, we're going to be starting in verse 66. And once again, the main point or the first point that we want to see this morning is that the best of men are men at best. The best of men are men at best. Mark 14, starting in verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly 
you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. So in these verses, we see the terrible and incredibly sad fall of Peter, the rock. Mere hours after, Peter boldly declared that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He is left beside himself with utter shame because he had failed so terribly. And this point, I think, is particularly poignant because Peter really serves as the author of this. Mark is the author of, uh, or Mark is the, the author of his particular gospel, but, but it's widely held that Peter serves as the source material for this. So really, it's Peter telling Mark what all happened. And so in this passage, we see Peter saying, here's how bad I messed up. This is what happened. And he doesn't paint a particularly flattering picture of himself. And so what I'd like for us to do is to spend a few moments just working our, our way through this passage. We've seen the different events that come up and, in order to, and we want to do that in order that we might feel the heaviness of Peter's sin and rejection of Christ. And so let's dive in. As I alluded to a moment ago, the whole story really begins hours earlier when Jesus tells his disciples that many would fall away. And Peter says, never. Not me. I will never fall away. I will stick by your side. It doesn't matter what the rest of these clowns do. I will stay beside you, Lord. Nevertheless, Jesus says to Peter, indeed, you will fall away. You will deny me three times before the rooster crows. As uh, Luke tells this story, uh, he actually tells us that Satan came presumably to God the Father and demanded Peter, demanded that he have Peter, that he might be sifted like wheat, that he might be graded and destroyed and discarded as nothing. But Luke tells us that Peter, or that Jesus prayed for Peter, that as he fell, that he would be restored and that he would have faith. And so this leads us to Mark 14, verses 53 and 54. As Jesus is brought into the courtyard and he's brought to the high priest that he might be tried, Peter, we're told, is following behind at a safe distance. He's hiding behind rocks and hiding behind trees and he's working his way in and he actually gets into the courtyard of the high priest. And there he huddles around a fire and begins to warm himself along with some of the other people there. In our passage then, as we get into the verses that we're looking at in particular today, our passage begins and this servant girl, a young servant girl, comes to Peter and she accuses him of saying, you were with that Nazarene Jesus. We might think she's just trying to describe who Jesus is, but I really think that when she's referring to Jesus as the Nazarene, she's using a slur here. You're with that piece of filth, Jesus, right? It's heavy. And how does Peter respond? I neither know nor understand what you mean. Neither know nor understand what you mean. This is an interesting phrase. Every once in a while, my wife, Ray Lynn, will ask me to do something and I will forget. Uh, This often is the case with feeding the cats. Will you please feed the cats tonight? Yes. 
And then she'll uh, get around to talking about nine o'clock at night and she'll say, did you feed the cats? And I'll go, and I realize I did not in fact feed the cats. I failed, I forgot. And the way that this tends to work itself out in our marriage is whenever I forget something or drop the ball on something, she'll ask me and I always respond by going, what? And, uh, and then she knows that I need to go do whatever it was that I, was, I told her that I would do. That's not what's happening here with Peter. When he says, I neither know nor comprehend, he's not saying, I have no idea what you're talking about. I can't even imagine what it is that you have in view here. Oh, no. Uh, he's not playing aloof here. The idea instead that's communicated to us is that he is emphatically denying to neither know nor comprehend kind of coming together meaning the same thing. I do not know that man. Absolutely not. I'm not with him. I'm not a part of his group. No. This is an emphatic denial of Christ. Truly, Mark speaks true when he tells us the disciples are slow to know and comprehend the truth. And so at this point, Peter, I think, understandably gets a bit frightened. He's just been confronted and he denies Christ. So he works his way towards the outer edge of the courtyard. He's really working himself towards the gate that he might flee. I have to imagine that he wants to stick around, though, because he's probably wrestling at some level with this confession that he made hours earlier. And so he, he, maybe he wants to leave, maybe he doesn't. But at the end of the day, he ends up close to the exit, probably for safe Uh, for safety that he might flee if it comes to that. And once again, uh, the servant girl comes and she says to the bystanders, he's with them. He was one of them. And once again, we don't get a lot of uh, details here, but once again, Peter denies, no, I'm not with Jesus. And so there's a second denial. And some time passes. And finally, the bystanders again accuse Peter of being a disciple. And this time they accuse him of being a disciple because he is a Galilean. In another gospel, we see uh, that he's being accused of being a Galilean because of his speech. He sounds like a Galilean. Uh, People from Galilee had a distinct accent. At this point, Peter has talked so much that he has given himself away. When I was young, my dad used to tell me that it's better to be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. Peter would have been well to heed my father's advice in this moment because in doing so, he basically told everybody that he was from Galilee. And it's crazy because Peter, in this situation, would have stuck out like a sore thumb. He's from Galilee, which means he would have talked. It'd be like a British person in here speaking with a British accent. Everybody would know that that person's not uh, from the United States. It sounds different. Uh, but he's also probably dressed different. Everybody else has a reason for being there. This is in the middle of the night at a court type uh, hearing and he's coming in there warming himself by the fire. It would be as if a French mime came in and sat in the back. We'd all be looking over like, that person, what? He doesn't fit in here. And that's kind of what's going on with Peter. And so they're looking at him and they're thinking, yeah, I hear you denying Jesus, but I'm pretty sure you're with him. And nevertheless, Peter denies. And so in verse 71, with all this being the case, they come to him and they say, you're with Jesus. And Peter denies again. And this time, Peter, as he denies, invokes a curse upon himself. And he swears that he doesn't know of whom they speak. Commentators are a bit divided on this. Some people believe that when he invokes a curse, what he's doing is he's invoking a curse upon himself and those around him. 
Others, though, think that he's invoking a curse upon Christ. And so the idea would be here, and, and I'm really inclined to believe that that latter uh, situation is the case. I think he's invoking a curse upon Christ. And so the idea here would be to hell with him. I do not know that man. And if it's referring to himself and the bystanders, it's saying, I don't know that man. To hell with me and to hell with you if I know that man. That's serious. The the stakes are being elevated here. That is strong language, right? He is invoking a very serious curse here. This isn't something you say offhanded. This is a big deal. There is an incredibly emphatic and dangerous denial. Peter, the rock, the one who confessed Jesus as the Christ in Mark 8. And here he is referring to the the one who is the Christ, the son of God, as that mere man, as if he was a mere man. Here Peter is crumbling beneath the pressure of a servant girl and some bystanders. And so at this point, the rooster crows. And as the rooster crows, Jesus remembers Jesus' words that he would deny him. And at this point, the wording is kind of odd. The phrasing is kind of odd, but Peter is undone. He's beside himself and he falls down in utter shame in the recognition of his sin. And so the rock has hit rock bottom. We need to feel the enormity of Peter's sin here. We need to feel how big and heavy and significant this is. Three times Peter failed to understand Jesus' pronouncement of his death in the book of Mark. Three times Peter failed Christ in the garden. And now all of Peter's sin is culminating here and three times he is denying Christ as Lord in the, the courtyard area. And the temptation for us would be to look at Peter and go, isn't he terrible? Man, Peter, you blew it. You are the worst. But here we have to recognize that it's not just a story here in the book of Mark where Peter is blowing it and we get a little historical tidbit uh, moving from, the, uh, from Jesus in the garden to the, to the courtyard and all the way to the cross. No, this is here for a particular reason. In this story, we see Peter acting as our representative, He's representing us. He's representing mankind. When Peter is coming here and he's failing miserably, he's holding up a mirror that we might see ourselves more rightly. We belong to that number who have despised and rejected our Lord Jesus. We are implicated here in Peter's sin. This is not a Peter problem. This is not a disciple problem. This is a grace EV free problem. We are guilty here. I've ne- I've, over the past several weeks as I've been thinking on this passage, I've been considering how do I deny Christ? You know, I've never had a gun held to my head or a sword held to my throat and asked to confess Christ or die or con- confess Christ and die. But that's a reality for many in our world. And that's something that, that we need to be prepared for. But that's not my story thus far in my life. Usually it's a lot more subtle. Even though I've never had a sword held to my throat and denied Christ in that way, I deny Christ consistently. 
when I'm in Starbucks and I have the opportunity to proclaim the gospel because a door has been opened to a, to a cashier or a person, regularly do I shrink back. Regularly do I shrink back from declaring the gospel or being or representing Christ to friends or to family members. So often I've shrunk back from calling sin, sin, because I'm scared that it will label me as a religious fanatic or a fundamentalist. I've changed my vocabulary. I've laughed at inappropriate jokes. And all the while I have denied my Lord. And I'm willing to bet that based on what I believe Mark is teaching us here and based on my own personal experience, that I'm not alone in this. Once again, this is a grace EV free problem. We collectively are a people who deny Christ. And we have to recognize here too, we could be quick to beat up on Peter, but Peter really represents the best of us here. Where were all the other disciples in this story? They scattered. They're not in view here. Peter at least had the courage to follow behind. Yes, at a safe distance, but at least he got in the courtyard where he had the opportunity to deny Jesus. If this was me or if this was you, we'd probably not be in the same city. We are all implicated here. And this is really bad news. This is really bad news for Mark 8. In Mark 8, Jesus says, for whoever is ashamed of me, in my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, Will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels? That applies to us. It's bad news. At the end of the day, these verses teach us that the best of men are men at best. Mankind is sinful and flawed. We are not the hero of this story. But... There is a hero. These verses point to Christ, the one who, though he was despised and rejected, stood on our behalf. There's a Christ focus in in these verses. So this leads us to our second point. Jesus succeeds in every way that we fail. Jesus succeeds in every way that we fail. The structure of Mark 14 uh, provides some incredible insight and valuable um, and real value into helping us understand the point of uh, Mark 14, 66 through 72. Uh, you see, we're not just reading mere history. We have to get that in our mind. We're not just getting a random little story. And if we read this in a vacuum, then we might miss really what's going on here in Uh, in this section. What we have here is called a Markin sandwich. We've talked about this several times throughout the study of our book, throughout the study of Mark. And we don't need to go into all the details, but basically when we look at the structure of this section, we see that we have to read this particular story, Peter's denial, in light of what happened previously. This isn't a random interjection. Rather, it is pointing us back to what Jesus just went through before the council. You see, these are two simultaneous events. It's not that Jesus went before the council and then Mark was in, or then Peter was in the courtyard. No, these are concurrent, not chronological. And so as they're chronological events, we are then to compare and contrast how Jesus responded before the council and how Peter responded in the courtyard. 
And as we do this, I think we really begin to see some really important, incredible things. And so let's dive in. Consider the accusations that were levied against Peter and Jesus. Peter endures true accusations. A slave woman comes to Peter and accuses him of belonging to Jesus' disciples. An absolutely true claim. This is true. Yeah, absolutely. I belong to Jesus' disciples. Nevertheless, Peter categorically denies this claim. Jesus, on the other hand, endures a mountain of false accusations. Witnesses come forward and they offer false testimony. Other witnesses provide conflicting accounts. Over and over again, we see that the claims levied against Jesus were false claims. Peter endured true claims. Jesus endured false claims. Consider who levied the accusations against Peter and Jesus. Peter was accused by a lowly slave woman. Not lowly in the eyes of God, but lowly in the eyes of public opinion and authority. A person whose opinion carried absolutely no weight. I think about how many times in my life I have shrunk back from people whose opinion have no bearing on my life whose opinion do not matter for the way that I normally live my life. I shrink back from cashiers and from the different people who will never see me ever again. And that's kind of like what's happening here with Peter. It's as if he's bowing before a baby and shrinking back in fear. It's it's mind-boggling. And Jesus, on the other hand, is going before the high priest, the chief priest, the elders, and the scribes. Jesus is dealing with people who have real authority. They have power. Their words have sway. They can do real-life things in the world. And Jesus stands before these people resolute. He stood strong. Consider Jesus and Peter's response to these accusations. Peter, when confronted with true accusation from somebody who holds no authority, becomes a babbling idiot. No, absolutely not. I'm not with him. I'm not with him. No, curses on you. Curses on him. Curses on me. I'm not there. I'm not there. We've all known people before who they're dead to rights. We know that they did something wrong and they start doing everything they can to cover it up and they start acting just crazy, right? That's similar to what's happening here with Peter. He's losing it. Jesus, on the other hand, stood and maintained perfect resolve and composure. When the high priest asked Jesus what his answer to these accusations were, he stood and remained silent. How different from Peter, right? Finally, consider the affirmations and denials. Peter, when pressed to confirm or deny if he was in fact a disciple of Jesus, shrank back. And denied, no, I do not belong to that number. He went out of his way to definitively say, no, I am not with him. Jesus, on the other hand, responds to the high priest. When he asks if Jesus is in fact the Christ, he confesses his true identity and says, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power. Such different pictures. 
I think the story of Peter's denial really serves as an illustration here in the book of Mark. It shows us by contrast what Jesus is not like. We see Jesus' glorious resolve on the one hand, and then we see Peter's remarkable failure on the other hand, and all this is doing is elevating Christ and showing us how awesome and amazing he actually is. Many of you know that my wife, Raylene, and I, we are going to be entering into, Lord willing, the, the world of parenthood here pretty soon. And we are over the moon, excited, um, nervous. There's a whole gamut of emotions that we're feeling right now, but we're just really excited to meet this guy that we're going to have here in a few weeks. Once again, uh, trusting that the Lord will bring that about. But as we get closer and closer to this date, uh, we've began to receive a lot of parenting advice. <clears throat> and the strange thing about this is it's not so much directed towards Ray Lynn. Um, I feel very confident that she will be a great mom. She is incredible, and I have zero doubt that she's going to do a fantastic job at this. Other people seem to agree with me. They're a little more concerned about me for some reason, though. And so a lot of this is coming towards me. Well, uh, a few weeks back, one of uh, the members of this church, Teresa Valles, uh, shared a link on my Facebook page that was to help me to understand how to be a parent and what to do with children and what not to do with children. So we have some pictures up here that illustrate these. So what do we do with a baby? We, we play hide and seek. We don't play chess with them, which is a bummer because I like chess. We feed the baby with bottles, not with chicken legs. We lift the baby. I've learned that you hold them by the neck and you lift up, support the head, not grab the head and lift them up. Bonding with the baby. Apparently babies can only see like a foot in front of them. So you hold them up to your face. You don't drink coffee and laugh with them. Clearing baby's nose. They have a little machine for that. Don't pick their nose. When you dry your baby, do it with a, you know, a towel, not the dryer. Uh, help the baby to teethe with toys, not dirty shoes. Calming the baby, don't use alcohol. And then lastly, please do not put your baby in the fish tank to introduce them to pets. I think even though these images are funny, I think they can be very helpful for us to see what's going on here in Mark. Jesus is being illustrated as the ideal parent for us, you know, if we're going with this illustration. Jesus is the one who perfectly cares for his children. He's the one who plays with them the appropriate way, and he feeds them in the appropriate way. We, on the other hand, are illustrated in the terrible parent, the one who picks them up by their head or puts them in a fish tank. In this story, what we're seeing is, is Jesus standing tall, and we're seeing our utter failure. When we look at the two stories, Jesus before the council and us in the courtyard, and we juxtapose these two stories together, Jesus is succeeding in every way that we are failing. And in doing this, Peter is illustrating mankind's profound need for a savior. We collectively have fallen short of the glory of God. We need a savior. You see, we are not the hero of this story. 
Peter is not the hero of the story. So often we can be tempted to read the Bible and in situations like this, we go, not me. I would jump in and I would say, he is my Lord. I belong with him. And that's not the picture that we see here. We are not the one who stands up for the good cause. We're not the one who stands strong. No, we are not the hero. Jesus is the one who stands tall as our hero. Jesus is the one who's succeeding in the ways that we are falling. He lived a life that we could not live. And in chapter 15, one chapter later, we'll see that he is going to die the death that is going to rescue us as well. One of the great ironies of this story of Peter is that Peter gets off scot-free. The story ends and we don't know exactly how it ended, how Peter got away, but we know he got away. Peter's story doesn't end in Mark 14, but it continues. He is a a crucial figure in the early church. He comes back in Mark 16. We don't know exactly what happened, but even though he endured true accusations, even though he was dead to rights, he got away. Jesus, on the other hand, though innocent, is condemned as a blasphemer. And I think in this, we begin to see the substitutionary nature of Jesus' death on a cross. Peter did not get what he deserved, which was punishment. And Jesus did not get what he deserved, which was life and glory and honor. Jesus took our place. Peter's sin was incredible and devastating. Yet, while Peter rebelled, Jesus was securing the very verdict that would take him to the cross in the next chapter, that Peter's sins and that our sins would be dealt with. Praise the Lord. Surely Christ is to be exalted in this. We're to fix our gaze upon him, our Lord and our Savior. I think in Mark 14, 66 through 72, we are truly seeing that the best of men are men at best. We are a sinful and rebellious people. However, we have a hero in Christ who has lived a life that we could not live. And in chapter 15, we'll see that he is going to die the death that we should have died. And so in light of these incredible truths, I want to just make a few take-home truths or application points that we can go home with. And the first is this, be bold, be strong, have faith. This is keeping in line with my inability to come up with clever sayings. This is from one of Walt's songs. Be bold, be strong, have faith. Jesus died and rose again that we might have our cowardly sin forgiven. But not only that, he's died, he died that we might be free to live in utter confidence in our Lord. We can be bold, we can be strong, and we can have faith because of Christ. I think the, it, the temptation might be here to apply this passage by going onto Facebook and liking every Christian article that we see or sharing Christian articles and saying that somehow is going to be us affirming Christ and kind of living like Peter didn't live. But I don't think that's quite what's in view here. Rather, I think we are to be a people who are characterized by boldness. Peter was eventually restored We see that in Mark 16. We see that in the beginning of the book of Acts. His godly grief turned to repentance and restoration. And eventually he became the sort of person who empowered by the spirit proclaimed the gospel of grace even to the religious leaders who had the authority to destroy him. 
Peter was the, the one who told the religious leaders that he would defy their orders because he cannot help but speak of what he has seen and what he has heard. Peter, who once cried in shame, eventually went to his death for the sake of the gospel. Let us be empowered with this sort of gospel boldness. Let us live lives that are characterized by boldness. Sure, let us be a Christian on Facebook and like Christian articles, but let it not stop there. Let us be people who are um, people who live in light of the gospel at our workplaces, at the water cooler, people who proclaim the gospel to our family members. I know some of you have unbelieving spouses or unbelieving children or family members who are all over the map. Let us be about the gospel to these people. When we go to the library or we, our kids are on sports teams and we're rubbing shoulders with parents, let us be about the gospel. Let us be gospel saturated, meaning that we're so filled up with the gospel when we bump into other people or we bounce off the wall, the gospel oozes out of us. Let us be bold, let us be strong and let us have faith. May the spirit work in our hearts so that the gospel takes root more and more. Be bold, be strong, have faith. Second, hide in the word. Hide in the word of God. I wish I had more time to talk about this and really unpack this, but one of the most amazing aspects of Jesus' time before the council is that it closes with people beating Jesus and them telling him to prophesy, mocking him. And all the while, Because these are two simultaneous events, Jesus' prophecy that Peter would deny him three times is actually uh, unfolding at the very same moment. In this, we see the profound wisdom of God, the power of God, and the fact that God's word is true. We see this all throughout the book of Mark. God's word is true. When Jesus says something will happen, then it happens. God's words are being carried out with omnipotent power. And so therefore, if we desire to be a people who are bold, strong, and faithful, then we need to be a people who hide in these amazing, true, and strong words. Apart from spending time in God's word, we will simply lack the faith, boldness, and courage that we need to go throughout this life. Pastors are always hesitant to answer questions like, How long should I read my Bible? How often should I pray? And for very good reason. Uh, The answers to these questions can sometimes promote legalism, moralism, and put just a heavy weight that is hard to bear on people. Nevertheless, I recently read an article by John Piper where he said that in today's current cultural climate, Christians reading their Bible 10 minutes a day simply won't do. It simply won't do. And in saying this, I don't think that he's saying that people who read their Bible for only 10 minutes are failing and they're being terrible Christians. For some people, reading their Bible for 10 minutes is the most faithful and incredibly spiritual thing that they can be doing. And for others, people who are reading their Bibles for hours and hours are being incredibly disobedient. But that's not his point. I think the point that he's trying to make is that we desperately need God's word in order to make it in this world. We desperately need God's word. Boldness, strength, and faith will be in short supply if we cut ourselves off from engaging with God where he is found in his word. Therefore, let us be a people who hide in God's word, who go to God in his word, rest in his word, that this sort of faith, boldness, and strength might be supplied. Last, repent and believe. 
My guess and my hope is as we've been discussing Peter's incredible sin, that our own denials of Christ and our own sinfulness would be coming to mind. I think that's a really appropriate thing to be happening here as we look at this passage. But once again, let Peter serve as our representative here. We too have denied Christ. We too have denied Christ. But let us take heart. Because in verse 72, that's the end of Peter's story here. But we know that Peter came back. We know that in chapter 16 he was restored. We know that Acts comes along. And we know that Peter was restored in Christ. Scripture is clear that whoever would deny Christ would be denied before the Father. Whoever is ashamed of Christ will be ashamed of before the Father. But Christ stood in our place. He stood in the gap. And now despite our denial, he will never deny us who are in Christ. Amen. That is good news. And so regardless of the sin that's coming to our mind, regardless of how terribly we have rebelled against God, we can have utter hope and faith and trust knowing that our sin has been dealt with, that we have been washed clean by the blood of the lamb. Therefore, let us be people who repent and believe in Jesus, who root ourselves in the gospel over and over again and go and sin no more. Let us believe in this awesome Jesus and ascribe to him the glory and honor that is due his name by actually believing in him and repenting and let this be the pattern of our life. I want to close just by reading a passage that I love and I think is particularly appropriate given what's going on here in Mark. And it comes from Hebrews 10, verses 32 through 39. But recall the former days when you were enlightened You endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come, and he will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And here's where I want us to focus on. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Let's pray. Father, we praise your holy name. You are a good and gracious, awesome Lord. And we thank you for loving us in Christ. We thank you that even though we are sinful and flawed humans, that Christ has stood on our behalf. Lord, allow this to wreck our minds, that we might turn and fix our eyes on your son, believe in him and worship him as he is due. We thank you for your word and we thank you for how your spirit works through your word. May you pierce our hearts now and turn us to your son. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.